Hi pals, it's Melanie here and I wanted to let you know that we'll be talking about sexual assault throughout this episode. Look, we're not going to be detailing any actual incidents, but we will discuss it using the language that was common in 1983. If you don't feel up for listening to that, please just sit this one out. And if you're in Australia and you need support, the number for 1800RESPECT is 1800 737 732. Hello, hello, I'm Melanie Tate and this is A Country Podcast where Kim Lester and I talk about the social and cultural impact of the phenomenon known as a country practice. Kimothy, what's the haps? What's news? Mel, news is after a week of celebrating the joy that is the TV wedding, uh, we've returned to form, sorry, with an episode of A Country Practice that was heavy on the community education. But also I've got to say it was really well done. Yeah, it really was, Kim. Which episode are we talking about? We are talking about Season 3, Episode 45 and 46, A Lady's Choice. And if you can't tell from that title, this is a pretty, actually amazingly handled story of rape in a small country town. Uh, When I say amazingly handled, what I mean is considering it went to air in 1983, it's incredible. Uh, More on that episode in a moment, but Kim... We are going to be talking with somebody who, when I was leaving work the other day, I said to my colleague, I'm not coming into work tomorrow because at lunchtime I'm interviewing Dr. Simon Bowen, also known as Grant Dodwell. And she said, oh my God, when I was growing up, all I wanted was for Simon Bowen to be my husband. You're interviewing my future husband. (laughs) And then we went down a rabbit hole of like beautiful Simon moments. Yes. So Simon, who who you kept calling Simon. Oh my God. I knew I'd do it. It was so embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be with us. It's, It's exciting, Kim. Let's get into it. So Kim, before we recap, I feel we have to do a bit of housekeeping after our last episode. Now, first of all, I asked if Terence and Vicky had ever had a thing and you rightly predicted the ACP fans would tell us. Oh, yeah, didn't know what. Um, very thank you hugely to Lily, who I think said that she actually pulled over on the side of the road to write this message to us on Facebook. <laughs> she was onto it straight away on our Facebook page, A Country Podcast. Um, she wrote, Vicky always had a massive crush on Terence. She was jealous of anyone who came into this space. She admits it to her mother and she admits it to Terence. Vicky and Terence. Oh, so I mentioned in our episode last week, Mel, that I thought that maybe there was somewhere where they got trapped and romantic feelings started to arise. And um, she said, Vicky and Terence went to Magnolia Vale in the lead up to Simon and Vicky getting together when uh, Vicky had Simon firmly in the friend zone mm. in a sequence of highly plausible shenanigans. <laughs> uh, they ended up having to stay overnight there. Terence and Vicky always maintained nothing happened. Simon was filthy dirty with Terence and Vicky was coy. Repeat, supposedly nothing happened. They didn't really have time, though, with Terence bailed up a tree in his underpants with a savage dog. <laughs> so I've got to Terrence check that Terence in a tree out. with his underpants? I think we need to do this episode <laughs> at some stage, Kim. I think we definitely do. In, and she just adds, in Vicky's final episode, Brendan quizzes Terence about it and Terence looks coy and slightly smug. And Lily finishes this by saying, when I go on hard quiz, Simon and Vicky will be my expert subject. So Tom Glee. Jason, are you listening? 
Yeah. And Lily, I hope you've applied for that show because we are all going to be rooting for yeah. you so much. Oh, my gosh. What if they got us to write the questions, Kim? Oh. That would be too exciting for words. That would be so good. <laughs> Kim, the other Although bit clearly of we're not the people to, uh, <laughs> to write the questions. No, we're not. But I will quite happily watch uh, three or four years of their relationship yeah. uh, in order to write those questions. For sure. Uh, Kim, the other bit of housekeeping is that just days after we put production on that episode to bed, Simon Denny, Nee Baker, Nee Baker Denny <laughs> and Rebecca Rigg announced their split, which is sad for them, but also dated my segment in Yes. Um, Yeah, that one was thank you to Todd for filling us in on that. Um, He mentioned, um, did you not know about Simon and uh, Rebecca splitting? Uh, No, the answer was no, we did not. (laughs) Not at that stage. Not at that point. Yeah, yeah. Rest in peace, their relationship. Yeah. Um, Kim, shall we uh, get cracking on this episode? Yeah, let's recap. This is a tough episode, Mel. Mm. We meet local hairdresser Mandy Marshall, who is happily married, but she does enjoy a bit of harmless flirting with the likes of Simon Bowen and Cookie and some of the other blokes around Wandon Valley. And while her husband is away, she pops into the pub for a drink and she meets Cookie's grog supplier, Evan Forbes, who's uh, visiting from out of town. The pair have some friendly banter and he buys her a couple of drinks. And um, when her lift home, also known as Bob Hatfield, becomes too inebriated, as if you'd rely on a lift from Bob Hatfield. But anyway, um, Evan These were different times, though, with drink driving. But anyway, yeah. Very true. Um, Evan offers to drive her home. And it being a small country town in 1983, she doesn't particularly see that as anything other than a polite offer. And she accepts. And he he does, it doesn't seem like a creepy offer at all. I probably wouldn't have declined that offer in those circumstances. Anyway, when they get back there, he asks to come in to use her toilet. And the next Thing we see is a distressed Mandy sitting alone on her lounge room floor calling her husband's motel. Uh, it's clear to the viewer that Mandy has been raped. When uh, word gets out, a few people in town have a hard time believing it. And meanwhile, in another plot, Bob's grieving after his wife Daisy's death and Cookie is between houses. So he talks Bob into letting him move in, which sounds like a Cookie shenanigan. But actually, Mel, I really just want to talk about um, how they handled Bob's grief and the way that his friends supported him. So we'll get into the the main plot line, which is mm. Mandy in a second. But I just was really moved by the way that Bob's friends supported him and the way that they portrayed male grief in and male men talking about their emotions because they knew that Bob would never come right out and talk about his feelings because he's a man of his generation. And so Molly turned up with Chloe and then she just said, i got to go, can you look after her for me, which is just genius um, because it forced distraction onto him and she could sense that he knew that he'd be okay and she trusts him. And when Frank went to see him, the two men were standing shoulder to shoulder and that is the um, mantra of the men's shed, uh, which is men don't talk face to face, they talk shoulder to shoulder. Um, so I thought that was really apt and then Cookie got through to Bob through his stomach and put the idea in his head that he should move in and I thought that was really lovely as well. It was beautiful, wasn't it? And it was really lovely how uh, the whole community, when Bob wasn't around, was talking about this. Yes. So they were they weren't dismissing it. They were all worried about yeah. him, and they were saying it, and they were asking after him. And it was just beautiful. One of the things that um, 
Cookie cooks for Bob is banana custard. Oh, yeah. And I feel like the whole, I've never tried banana custard. It's the first time I heard it existed and it sounds like the most delicious thing ever. Oh, do you know, in terms of my food phobias, those two things combined just sounds horrifying because <laughs> bananas blah, custard blah. <laughs> I was just going to say, the way they all treated Bob to me was banana custard. Oh. You know, it was it was just so warm and sweet and wholesome and delicious. Yeah, you know, it was it was really beautiful. And you sort of saw him come, you, you see him come out of himself yeah. a bit. It's a it's it's a actually a really counteractive, beautiful thing to have in the episode because yeah. this is a traumatic episode. This is not an episode to go and watch um, without taking care of yourself. Yes. You know, so that provides, it's not a comic relief. It doesn't provide, it provides a heart relief. Yeah, definitely. And in fact, I don't think there really was a comic relief in this episode, not one that I can remember. Um, so let's get into talking about the um, mm. sexual assault storyline. What did you think about the way the attacks were um, portrayed? So there's two attacks. Yes. There's the original rape after that we don't see because, um, you know, we've got to bear in mind too, kids are watching this. It's Monday nights at 7.30. Yeah. Um, so we don't actually see anything like that. I found when he came back to the house so upsetting, mm. Kim. So um, it was such a horrible surprise, you know, like when that she's – so Mandy uh, is sitting in her house and – She's alone. Really interesting. Yeah, she's alone. The interesting thing they've done with this character is they have Geraldine Turner, who is a famous charisma cat, play the character, and she is so charismatic and fun and gregarious in every way. Her hair is red, flaming red, mm. and fantastic. Her clothes are pink and fashionable and fabulous. She knows everybody. She's funny and fun, and then everything about her gets erased completely while she's trying to work out mm. what to do. So crossing to her after she's been raped the first time is awful and then we spend a lot of time with her worrying about what's going on and when the door knocks and she opens it and he barges in to rape her for the second mm. time, I found it viscerally awful. Yeah. Yeah, what about you? I thought the way, definitely the first one, I actually, I thought everything that needed to be shown was shown. In I, yeah. I think there was so much said in not actually demonstrating any of the violence of the situation so the last we saw of evan with that first attack was him being let in to use the toilet and then the, and then it just goes straight to mandy upset sitting on her lounge room floor we know what's happened to her we know mm -hmm. um and then the second one yeah i agree i thought it was really tough i think a more modern show would actually be a lot more graphic with it and i don't think that's a good thing i don't know that that's mm -hmm. necessary in order to um, get the message across of, of her trauma. What did you think about the way Mandy herself, uh, and we'll talk about the way the community mm -hmm. handles Mandy, but the way Mandy herself um, reacts and responds to what's going on? So initially she, after the first attack, she is jumpy and she, like you say, she's been stripped of all of her charisma. She, she's afraid to be that vivacious uh, flirt that she was at the beginning of the episode. And she's so much fun at the beginning of the episode. But she's also 
you know, terrified to talk to anybody and tell anybody what's happened. Um, and she's doubting herself. She's doubting mm. whether or not it actually was a rape because although she knew, she definitely knew in herself that she didn't consent. So I thought that her, I thought it was a really apt depiction of her shame and her doubt, her self-doubt and not being able to say the words to anybody. And then after the second attack, she became really strong, didn't she? She became quite powerful in her her preparedness to speak up. I mean, it was mm. a journey and there were a lot of people trying to prevent her from getting to that point. But I thought that she was a really strong character throughout. Well, it's interesting because the first rape, her, um, her self-doubt, really reflected the messages that she would have been getting at that time. Like she was worrying about whether she'd led him on, Mm. whether she'd been too friendly, whether it was actually her fault. And I think that by the second rape she knew she'd really been abused. I mean she knew that the first time but she, there was no room for self-doubt anymore after that because she'd been so, so wronged. What did you think about the way the authorities, also known as Frank Gilroy and and the hospital, Mm. Um, dealt with her I found that the least on par with what would happen in 2020 it it brought me it made me think of I know this is not Australian but it made me think of the tv show Broadchurch have you watched that it's a David Tennant show um, and Olivia Coleman and in I think their final season they deal with a um, sexual assault and the way what I can only imagine is the police procedure for Uh, you know, like for what happens from the moment a person reports a sexual assault throughout the investigation and the way that she's treated and the way that um, they show the very sort of clinicalness of it all, but they also show how important it is that they as police demonstrate to her that she is believed and that's completely the opposite to what this experience was. That There were times when Matron Sloan was very gentle with her, but then there were times when she snapped at her. If we consider that this was 40 years ago, I feel like the way Joan, uh, Joan Sydney, <laughs> Matron Sloan acts, I was so relieved. When she got to the hospital and Matron Sloan so clearly knew what had, had yeah. happened immediately when she said, no, I need to see Matron Sloan, I need to see Matron Sloan, she was so caring mm-hmm. and I felt like Matron Sloan actually and Shirley were the heroes of this episode. Oh, yeah. Definitely. As well as um, and Simon, and si- Oh, and Simon, yeah. As well as uh, as well as, of course, uh, Mandy. Mm. But yeah, obviously the policing was pretty rough. I thought Frank was really gentle in a lot of ways, and he definitely did believe her in in a way that was probably better than a lot of other male cops of his generation of that era. But also he turned on her to, to make a point about what her experience in court would be like. Oh, you think it's perfectly respectable for a married woman to accept a lift home from a man when her husband's out of town? Trying to confuse me, like that detective. Did he really make an excuse to use the bathroom? Yes! That's a bit corny, isn't it? Well, I mean, you've been around. You're no innocent schoolgirl. I wonder, though, how much has changed now. I mean, I, can, I would hope that except... Um, I was just I was talking to my sister about this who's a prosecutor and she is a prosecutor out, you know, in all sorts of country tiny towns. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, surely this wouldn't go on now. Surely, you know, you go in and you're and a woman sees you when something when you go to the police, a woman sees you. And she said a lot of those places just don't yeah. have a 
woman copper. Oh, yeah, they're one cop stations. So you just, I don't know, I felt that for 1983 the way they all reacted, the service people, the police, the nurses, Mm -hmm. the doctors were pretty amazing. Yeah, I thought on the most part they were as well. Just finally, do you want to talk about how the town responded? There was a real divide in the town and that was demonstrated most clearly in the sides that Simon and Vicky fell on because Simon was very much... I believe her, um, she is a victim. And Vicky was very much, well, she, you know. She, she could have kicked him in the ball. She yeah. could have done this, that, and the other. Yeah. She, she was asking. All she, she had to do was she was no. asking for it. I think she actually said she was asking for yeah, it. Yeah, and she stage. at one point she said, my sympathies lie with the man who's been falsely yeah. accused. <laughs> yes. Vicky. But Vicky gets her comeuppance in a really um, controversial way towards the end of this episode. And I want to find out, Kim, what you thought about that. So what happens, uh, dear ACP listener, if you haven't um, seen this episode, is Vicky is like all she was asking for it, blah, blah, blah. Simon and Vicky are in the the vet office, which I didn't realise until today was on Shirley and Frank's house. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Mm. So they're in the vet's office and they're talking about it and Vicky's going on with that crap again. She was asking for it. All she had to do was push him away and knee him in the groin. Everybody knows that, blah, 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 blah. And Simon grabs her. I thought it was by the throat. (laughs) It's almost by the throat. You know, it's around. He grabs her around, definitely around her collarbone Mm. and pins her down to the desk. Mm. There's no way that if Simon, Simon... Right. Simon! Right. Ow. Now, do you want to say no? All right. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you. Suppose you think that was funny. I was just trying to prove a point. And it's a really dangerous moment, isn't it? It's a, it's a, there's something super dangerous about it, I felt. It's a really it's, uncomfortable moment. Yeah. And we'll talk to Grant about this because he actually rewatched. How awesome is Grant Dodwell that he's, he rewatched oh, these so episodes? Awesome. Um, yeah. I guess I don't want to say too much because a lot of our we we've kind of discussed this with him as well. But I felt really, really uncomfortable with, of course, yeah. I felt uncomfortable with the idea of this being the way to prove this point. I think something about it didn't sit right with me. But I also thought the way that it finished with a real moment of tenderness between them, Uh, I thought, thank goodness. You know, just from a story point of view, considering it's 1983, I think it was an absolute thwack of a way to end Mm. this episode. Like it was really powerful. It was so powerful because Vicky always, you've pointed this out several times, Vicky always takes like the country town. She's the devil's advocate character. Yeah, she really is. Yeah, and, um, and Grant will talk to this as well, but. I actually, after talking to him, I really appreciate not just the fact that Simon is a progressive voice, but the way that he says it. And Grant will explain mm. that. But there's actually yeah. something really important about the way that he does it. It was it. It's such an amazing episode. Mm. And I think one other thing I just want to point out about it, Kim, before we go on, it is very, very obvious to me that in 1983, when this was made. It is made with the fingerprints of many, many women involved. Yeah. I cannot think of another show where it would have, like, in spite of the bits and pieces we've pulled out that might not have been hugely progressive, this was this would have been out of control progressive for 1983. Yeah, and I think it was also really clearly 
done in consultation with the Sydney Rape Crisis Centre. Absolutely. Which is yeah. so smart. It's 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 such a good episode. I would go as far to say I think it's the best episodes we've watched. Yeah, and my nine-year-old son wanted to watch it with me. He didn't watch all of I think he came in maybe like halfway through the last, the second episode. And I said to my husband before um, he started watching, I said, this is, this is what this is about. How do you feel? Because I don't mind him watching this and it's an opportunity for us to explain something to him, but I want to make sure that you're okay with that. And he said, yeah, of course. And so it was actually an opportunity to explain to my nine-year-old son what sexual assault is and what consent is and it was yeah it was really interesting mate you are living the a country I really am dream <laughs> you really are it's like you it's like you're reenacting what was going on in lounge rooms all around Australia in 1983 that is so beautiful that makes me love this episode even yeah, more totally um so Kim there's a really good opportunity to discuss irresponsible pet owners in this episode I'm so hoping that this is going to be your social issue today <laughs> Uh, yeah, nah, sorry. Um, in a moment, <laughs> I'll talk you through a couple of really key and fascinating moments in Australia's history relating to sexual assault. All right, Mel, um, these episodes first went to air on the 6th and 7th of July, 1983. That's according to IMDb. I don't always trust IMDb, but do you realize, Mel, it's actually a Wednesday and a Thursday night? At this point in time, I probably moves to Monday and Tuesday later in the piece. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. And also it probably depends on where you are in the country. It was NAIDOC week at this time in 1983, which at the time was actually called National Aborigines Week. And the general theme was communication. And the idea of that was to air issues of past and present institutional racism and dispossession with the goals of seeking solutions. Another significant moment in history this week was the High Court ruling on the Franklin Dam, Mel. So this was a massive case in Australia. The Commonwealth Government succeeded in stopping a large hydroelectric dam proposed to be constructed in southwest Tasmania. The seven judges of the High Court split 4-3 in deciding, amongst other matters, that the Commonwealth had power under Section 5129 of the Australian Constitution to stop the dam based on Australia's international obligations under the World Heritage Convention. And your prosecutor's sister could probably do a much better job than me of explaining why that judgment was about something far bigger than just the dam. But I'm not going to try and explain it now. <laughs> we'll get we'll get her to do a guesty one day. Think, She's really funny. I think at some point there will be a reason for us to do the Franklin Dam as the social issue <laughs> and she can guest star. <laughs> Great. And Mel, as I like to always tell you, the number one single this week is a real torch song. Turn oh, around. Every now and then I get a little bit. What's that song? Uh, a little I love bit something, song. something, something you know, in the look t- in your eyes. Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, what a great song. Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. So, look, we said this at the start of the episode, but I am about to get into the history of law reform of sexual assault. And while I'm not going to go into any specific cases or say anything graphic, I will be using the language of the time, as we have been already. I'm also just going to focus on Sydney and New South Wales laws because Wandon Valley is set in New South Wales and it's obvious from this episode, as we said, that um, the Sydney Rape Crisis Centre was the main source for their research and consultation. 
So the Rape Crisis Centre in Sydney was opened in October 1974 and it had a strict no men allowed policy. And this was not meant to suggest that the centre was anti-man, but it did reflect the fact that women needed a safe place to report rape Mm -hmm. free from shaming, doubt and blame. And so they owned that policy very proudly. The centre's main aims were to provide immediate and long-term emotional support for victims, to try to change the law where it discriminates against the victim, and to change community attitudes, which left victims feeling guilty and ashamed. The centre got 83 cases in its first five months, and of those cases, just 11 were reported to police. All my research was from Sydney Morning Herald clippings. So there'll be moments where I'm sort of just quoting directly out of articles, but this is all credited to the Sydney Morning Herald. The centre's coordinator, Miss Sally Johnson, said the police have too much power in determining whether a case is genuine or not. We feel that a rape case should be accepted at face value. Our goal is the same as theirs, and that is to prosecute the rapist. But some police develop an attitude of nice girls don't get raped towards some victims. The most important thing for the rape victim is to get medical attention and then if she wishes to go to the police. In November 1977, the report from the Royal Commission on Human Relationships was released, including a raft of recommendations to reform sexual assault laws. So these related to police procedures, better medical services, more funding for rape crisis centres, gender balance on juries, which I thought was an interesting one, and a change in the definition of laws from rape to sexual offences. It also recommended two really key changes, one around marital rape, which at that point was actually not illegal. Men were immune from prosecution if the victim was their wife, if the accuser was their wife. And um, the other was to protect victims from having their own sexual history used as evidence against them at trial. In 1978, the Labor New South Wales Attorney General, Frank Walker, drafted legislation to follow through with these recommendations, but the bill was shelved due to considerable opposition, both inside and outside of Parliament. A a big sticking point was that marital rape issue. What, people actually fought that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) They fought for the right to be able to rape their wife. That's appalling. It is. It's hideous. Wow. Uh, In May 1980, a national conference on rape law reform was held in Hobart to discuss pretty much all of the same reforms that the Royal Commission and the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre had been recommending for years. So changes to evidence laws, changes to laws around marital rape, police attitudes, funding for rape crisis centres. In November 1980, the New South Wales Cabinet finally accepted proposals from the New South Wales Women's Advisory Council, which was a a board, I guess, that reported directly to the Premier, Neville Rann, and the legislation was drafted once again. Same legislation, pretty much, I guess, probably there were some changes, but that had been shelved in 1978. The proposals included removing this legal immunity to men accused of raping their wives. It also looked at um, replacing the existing charge of rape with a graded system of sexual assault charges, which would be equally applicable to women and men. So the idea of that is that, my understanding of it, is that the laws up until now really only, and I'm sorry for this, this is probably as graphic as I'm going to get, really only related to vaginal penetration and or probably anal penetration 
they didn't relate to other types of sexual assault that are as shaming and degrading, um, but didn't fit into that definition of rape. Strictly limiting cross-examination of victims of sexual assault on their sexual history, redefining consent and ensuring that the victims did not have to offer resistance for charges to be proved. So the Attorney General of New South Wales, Frank Walker, who had written that legislation in 1978, he said at the time that two years ago he would not have thought it possible to pass a law involving rape in a marriage. But it was Mm -hmm. that um, conference that was held in Hobart which incorporated, you know, like judges from around the world, medical experts, just experts from around the world, and they unanimously agreed that this needed to change. So that was a big catalyst for the change. And also the work of groups like the Women's Advisory Council and the Rape Crisis Centre. So, Mel, the Crimes Sexual Amendment Act 1981 was passed finally in May and while it was a huge leap in the right direction, I think we've all lived on this planet long enough to know that change never comes in one single perfect package. Mm. Oh, man, that's thank you, Kim. That's so interesting, Tasmania, that, that Tasmania um, is a really interesting place for, you know, we've talked about the, the Franklin Dam mm. and at some stage I'm sure we'll talk about their battle in the 90s with, you know, homosexuality was still illegal until 1996 Mm. or something like that there. Then they go on and have these amazing laws because they've taken so long to get there. Yeah. That they, and how interesting that those conversations were happening in Hobart. I'm just a Tasmania file. I love that. (laughs) Thank you so much. No worries, Mel. All right, Kim. So this episode has some really incredible collaborators in it who I'm only going to mention briefly so we can get to the meaty character who's in it. Um, So we've got Penny Hackforth-Jones playing Terence's love interest in this. She was an actor who was very much part of the furniture of Australian film and television until she died in 2013. She died. She's such a familiar face. face. Yeah, exactly. She's kind of, she kind of had bit parts in everything Mm. rather than. I remember her from Mother and Son. I remember her from Mother and Son too, but I don't, I think she must have been one of the wives, but one of the wives who wasn't around very much of one of the sons. She wasn't the wife who was around all the time. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, So she was in Country Practice, Mother and Son, Paradise Road, Muriel's Wedding, you name it she's in it also interesting in this episode is Duncan Wass I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly Um, he's the actor who played Evan Forbes the rapist he's no longer in the industry now I found that he had a tea room in Lithgow some time ago but you know what he's most famous for Kim what he played B1 in Bananas (gasps) and Pajamas for like 40 episodes from the start, from the early days. I think so, yeah. Yeah, from the early days. Uh, Isn't that amazing? Sorry. I just need a moment to stop and process that the rapist from a country practice <laughs> was B1 in bananas in pyjamas. Well, h- how wonderful that he wasn't typecast. <laughs> but also you can't, you can't, the interesting thing about the casting of uh Duncan in this is he doesn't have a creepy vibe that's no. the whole point that's how we can go on and play um B1 it's kind of like how there's pajamas. an episode where Benita from play school plays um an abusive mother <laughs> in a country practice there's an episode there- where she plays an abusive mother I don't believe that for a second. How traumatizing is that <laughs> wow that's so imagine that, being that seven would- and seeing that episode that would fully mix you up my goodness um 
So, Kim, let's talk about the person I want to talk about today. It's the incredible actor who plays Mandy, Geraldine Turner, who I'm not even kidding for half a second, Kim. I wanted to be her when I was a teenager. She was an absolutely huge musical theatre star with the most amazing charisma, skills and voice, as you see in this, except we don't get to hear her amazing singing voice in this. I just want you to have a listen here to her singing at a tribute to Jerry Herman. Now, Jerry Herman is the guy who wrote, oh, I don't know, little musicals like Hello, Dolly <laughs> and La Caja Foal and Mac and Mabel and Mame. Let's have a little listen to her. Before the She's fabulous. Isn't she great? And I'm just so glad we've got a show tune on a country podcast now. I feel like it's about time. Yeah, it's about time. Isn't she fabulous, though? That's uh, Geraldine Turner there. Now, Geraldine is from up your way, Kim. She's from Brisbane and she knew, of course, from the time that she was five years old that she was destined to be a star. All the best she- ones are from Brisbane. Yeah, well, she she was doing ballet in Brisbane and then she got too tall. I'd venture to say too, Kim, she has way too much sass and personality <laughs> for ballet as well. And she did TV as a child and then went on to work in theatre, a lot for the Queensland Theatre Company. And, in fact, um, Grant Dodwell, who's with us soon, also started his career there. I think their paths would have crossed quite a lot. In fact, they did. He talks about that mm. with us Um when he's our guest. Now, she has played all the great musical theatre roles, every single one of them, Desiree in A Little Night Music, Velma Kelly in Chicago, Nancy in Oliver, As Long As He Needs Me. <laughs> like, she has sung all the good songs, The Baker's Wife in Into the Woods, yet she never went overseas to be a big star, even though she had the talent. Now, I want to read you this great quote from her. Mm-hmm. So this is what I love about She's like a massive diva mm-hmm. um, and it's really – so. This is an interview from The Age in uh, May 1989. She's asked by a journalist why she's not, you know, a humongo star in Australia and why um, Australians don't realise the talent that she is. And she says, let me think. (laughs) Look, I know I'm as good as Elaine Page or Bernadette Peters, (laughs) but there is a much bigger population in England than the US. Plus they are places that people actually visit the theatre. People don't come to Australia for the theatre. They come for the harbour or the beaches or Ayers Rock. But having said that, it's still true that in Australia, stars are the people on the front of TV Week and Women's Weekly. None of that is criticism. However, it's merely an observation. (laughs) Now, Kim, I would just like to say as a massive fan of musical theatre, she is as good as Elaine Page and as Bernadette Peters Mm. and Patti Lapone and all those people. She's absolutely incredible. So, like, any modesty that she has, which she doesn't, can I say in every interview that I ever read with her, she's very aware of her huge talent. Good for her. Exactly. And I suspect that that might be one of the reasons that we have long lived in a very sexist society and I think a woman speaking up and being proud of who she is would have scared a lot of people. Yeah. So um, she made a beautiful appearance in that film Careful He Might Hear You, which I think is still screening on the ABC at the moment with Robin Nevin and Wendy Hughes. She didn't really do movies from then, which makes no sense because how good is she on screen? She's beautiful. She's charismatic. She's really interesting. So she's definitely got that old school diva reputation. She knows how talented she is and everybody's a bit scared of her is the impression I get of her, certainly within the industry. Kim, before we talk tonight, I messaged and emailed a few friends who've either worked 
who've worked with her or been in the same circle saying, I'm going to do a profile on Geraldine Turner because she's amazing and I love her in the ACP podcast. Any goss? Invariably, Kim, I was told that there was goss but none for a podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. um, so one of my favourite, so this is the kind of star she was. She was on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald, August 11, 1994. And this story proves that the more things change, the more they stay the same. So it's a front page of Geraldine and her dog having a brilliant time, you know, looking fabulous and wonderful. And the headline is True Romance, It's Never Too Late. It's part of an ongoing series in the Sydney Morning Herald, Kim, mm. called Sydney's Missing Men. <laughs> so <laughs> there was obviously like a crisis about single men for single women. Um, it goes on to interview Geraldine about having uh, – this is – I love this part of her story – for personal reasons, obviously. <laughs> she found love at 44 when she'd all but given up with the conductor Brian Castle's Onion, who's 10 years her junior. Oh. Go, Geraldine. Here's what she said. I didn't go out and I didn't meet anyone. She said I was very lonely. I used to think if I am looking at men who are 35 to 50, why would a man like that want to go out with someone like me? Because you're like a hot yeah. babe full of talent, Geraldine. Because you're amazing. I thought I would be alone for the rest of my life with my two dogs. I should poke my two dogs now wow. to bark on cue here. And what was I going to do when they died? It was hell. <laughs> I mean, this, she's so great. And then she began seeing a therapist and spent the next three and a half years pondering her life before meeting Brian Castle's un onion. Geraldine uh, has continued working over the last few or all of the years, mainly doing the occasional TV guestie on Home and Away or House Husbands and doing cabaret shows with her husband, Brian Castle's Onion. They're still very much married. Isn't that great? Wow. That's yeah, awesome. all these years later. Um, she lives in the Southern Highlands now, Kim, where I'm from, and I've sat in some drafty halls hearing that incredible voice on a few lovely afternoons. Mm. She's a star and I just wish we could have had more of Mandy on a country practice. Yeah. How, did she do any other guesties or is that her one no, and only? that's it, her only one. Because she's such um, a star. One little addendum I want to put to this episode too is that it was directed by Catherine Miller, mm -hmm. who is obviously a woman director. She was at the very beginning of her career when this was shot and she has been directing ever since. She recently even did Channel 10's The Secret She Keeps. Wow. So really amazing woman. And I think that she went on to make a couple of telly movies about women's issues in the 80s, which I don't think would have been very easy to get over the line at the commercial networks. Yeah. And so she is the reason I think that this episode is so strong and so women-centric. Um, I would love to talk more about her. These are her only ACP episodes, oh. but I'm sure... At some stage we'll find we'll find a reason. a reason to have. I think we should get her on. To, like, I think these are such good episodes we should get her on to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. Let's now talk to the man who has become kind of our other heartthrob of a country practice. Like the more we watch of this character, Dr. Simon Bowen, we just love him so much, don't we, Kim? I think he's become he's going to be the hero of this season for us as well. In the same way that we – saw how amazing Esme and Matron Sloan were last season. I think the real takeaway for season two of A Country Podcast is that Simon is a bloody legend. Yeah, and we're discovering him and just loving everything about him. Yep, there's so much more to him than the being the goofy city boy. Totally. And so here's the person who made him come to life, Grant Dodwell. I remember, I think I came in twice and I auditioned with probably six to eight 
actresses. Mm-hmm. And the scene was the one with the sheepdog oh, um, yes. in the pilot. And they had a, a big, you know, one of those soft toys, but the similar size and all of that stuff going underneath the body and behind the tail. That was me just turning. But Jim Davin and Lynn Bionis, they said when they saw that screen test, there was no two ways about who was going to play Simon and Vicky, simply because every other actress, when I invaded their personal space, would move back. Mm. Penny Cook moved forward, you know, so every time I came in and uh, the chemistry was there. Were you and Penny already friends or was that an instant chemistry? Yeah, I think it was an instant chemistry. I, I think that does happen. I didn't know Penny, but we were both theatre um, actors and I guess it was. It was we laughed. I mean, we enjoyed each other's company in that that quick um, audition that we did, and uh, it was pretty inevitable that that it was going to go that way. I feel very. Um, in fact, I was quite overcome uh, last night watching those two episodes, mm. and I still find it. Uh, very difficult um, having lost Penny um, because I guess what you do when you lose someone is you reflect on your relationship a little more and what you brought to the relationship and what Penny brought to the relationship and it was a, a bond that was meant to be a lifetime and isn't. So it's mixed, mixed emotions while watching um, the footage of both of us working together because it does bring back the fun we had. Everything that we've heard and read about her, it sounds, and, and even just that story you told about her leaning forward, she sounds like an absolute force to be reckoned with, but in the best kind of way. Most definitely. Yeah. What was it like to work with her that closely, to have that opportunity to be with such a strong, strong woman? An intelligent yeah. woman. Well, I was lucky to be surrounded by many whip-smart, intelligent women in a country practice, uh, from Lynn Bionis, to the, to the writers, um, uh, uh, to the female directors. There were, you know, so many new young female directors that came on. But I guess with, with Penny, again, it comes down to Penny called a spade a spade, mm. but as you say, it was never with any intent, never any malicious intent. It was always an intellectual curiosity. And, in fact, Penny Cook was number one then mother of any guest actress or actor that came in. You'd be given the royal treatment, shown exactly what you need to do and how you need to do it. And if there was any problems, come to me, I'll sort it. Oh, that's brilliant. When we first are introduced to Simon in those first episodes, he's a bit of a preppy schoolboy brat. You know, he's almost, I would say, I don't really like him as much in the first episode mm. as over the years we all fall in love with him because he's, he's this beautiful, gentle, funny soul mm. with fantastic, kind politics and a kind manner. How much of that character development was because of you? Oh, everything. No, no. <laughs> No, I think the political positioning of Simon, 
I suspect it was there as the catalyst. Mm. So, sure, um, you know, I think I fortunately was through my socialisation had understanding of uh, boundaries and barriers and what's right and what's wrong and, you know, those sort of things which, you know, 98% of the population have. Um, and I think that was a combination of both. But primarily I think he was the uh, pragmatist, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. He wasn't as judgmental. I think it's a really good tool in the writing that he's kind of the socially progressive voice for Wandon Valley. Mm. How did viewers respond when um, your character was speaking up for things like gay rights and animal rights and environmental mm-hmm. protection? And, you know, were you getting responses from people from those communities saying thank you? We did. We did. I mean, the writers worked very closely with feedback and with the New South Wales Department of Health you know, they involved that department into saying, well, you know, where are the cracks? Where, where can we support you as a show in the current situation in the bush? So a lot of those situations were managed. You've watched the episode, Grant, uh, that we're talking about today, A Lady's Choice. What did you, what do you remember about that moment where you had to pin Penny Cook's mm. character, Vicky, to, to prove a point about, a man's strength over a woman. It was quite disconcerting. And I remember I actually challenged whether Simon would do something like that. I mean, I I think some it's a writer's right to write in, I think the character would do this. We can ask questions, but ultimately we must stay true to the writers. But I, I remember on that particular occasion, and Vicky DeVette's surgery was is quite small. And I remember rehearsing it was very difficult. And I know Penny was very helpful, but so I had to get over the hurdle that Simon would go to those lengths to prove a point rather than articulate it. But nevertheless, we went ahead and it was decided that we would make it as fast as possible with the least angst and and distress on Vicky's on behalf. Yeah. So Catherine Miller, the director, came down on set and we worked out how I would grab Penny's arm. And I, I watched it and was quite taken aback but remembered, I can't remember verbatim what Simon said after that, but he brought his vocal level right down yeah. into a very easy or manageable place vocally and physically. So there was a bit of air around it and it did uh, it did work really well. Yeah. I thought Jocelyn Turner did a, an extraordinary job yeah. in that because there were many sides and there was that incredible scene where Sergeant Gilroy, Brian mm. Wenzel, actually goes into a courtroom situation and for a minute I'm going, well, this is very unlike Brian's character, but... Then I got it as the character got it. Yeah. I see, that's it. Now, again, I questioned that and I wondered whether that would be an approach in 2021. Well, it definitely wouldn't be, would it? it? Those two moments were the only moments I feel almost in the entire episodes that dated them, you yeah. know, like, yeah. but, but at the same time, they were both, 
firmly on the side of the victim. Yeah, and they were a real reflection of the times as well, I think. Yeah. 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 And the Simon moment when he takes his hands off Penny and I think she says something like, but Simon, you're a nice bloke or something like that. And however you deliver that line back saying, well, yes, I am, meaning basically this can happen to anybody and anybody can be this person, I think it's one of the most powerful moments of the entire two episodes of powerful moments. And it finishes with a real tenderness because he holds her and he says, I'm sorry, and he Mm. shows her that she's safe. And I I guess that was an important thing for Simon to do to Mm. bring it back to his true character as well. Exactly. I like the way at the very end it gave Mandy sort of said, I phoned the rape crisis yes. centre and this has allowed me, given me the strength to, to actually pursue the case. If I lose, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It gives an opportunity for anyone in the situation uh, to have that support. So I, I thought that was a, a really good ending. Mm. Um, it's a really powerful episode. Did you have any favourite progressive causes of, of Simon's? No, I, I think it was just the humanistic side. I think because it's such a long time ago and memories do fade, having watched those two episodes prompted and I can see where your line of questioning is coming from now, I think there's a scene between Penny, Shirley and myself in the reception where... Penny is really saying, well, look at her, look how she presents herself. And Simon did really, um, how can I put this, the tone of voice changed and there was a lowering of that temperature through a very considered response. And I think generally I remember even with Shane Porteous's character and with Brian Wenzel that there was a, they gave Simon an opportunity to actually slow things down with a considered monitored response. But I also love the fun thing. <laughs> there were a couple of times where I was criticising myself when we're sitting around Molly's table, you know, and the four of us got on fantastically. And, you know, there were, there were times where the director would come down and say, too much fun, <laughs> you know. We don't want to see you having fun. We want to see the characters having fun. (laughs) That was something we wanted to ask you because was Simon's goofiness and that sense of humour, was that your sense of humour that the writers saw something that would bring comic relief to the show? Because it really does offset some of the really tough Mm -hmm. topics. Yeah, that is definitely part of my Mm humour. I mean, I I did a lot of... um, comedy theatre, review and uh, farce. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a combination with um, Simon, I think. At any opportunity, I really enjoyed the fact that, you know, he could be a bit of a goofball. And, yeah. you know, I was a big fan of the Marx Brothers, so there were elements of Simon's zaniness that I revelled in, and I think the writers saw that and certainly did write. And especially with Brendan, Jane Withington and myself, you know, uh, they tried. They had to keep us apart because you know, when we got together, we again have way too much fun. <laughs> Can you tell us about your relationship with Batso the Wombat? Because we Wombats. hear that they're both, yeah. Well, yeah, I think I must have had about oh maybe eight different wombats because they have growth spurts, and I had male and female, 
And they did nip us. I mean, we've got a yeah. goof reel where they used to bite us all the time. <laughs> but look, it, it was fine. It was it was it was difficult they, to work with. Um, the same as that great Dane Hamlet. I mean, honestly, that was just <laughs> such a time waster. <laughs> lovely, lovely big dog, but not my kind of dog. He was good, wasn't he? He was so good, but he was so thoughtful as and well. To watch the episode, I just was yeah. so impressed. Yeah. Well, look, my family's going to return home any minute now, so the quick we, sticks. We better get those fashions of the field in, Kim. We better pick out some fashions of the field. I said last week that if Molly's in an episode, I have to give it to her, but I don't think Mel. I don't think I've taken enough time to truly appreciate what a trendsetter Simon actually is in those <laughs> beige sports jackets and red pants. I mean, it's quite the look. And actually, I was reading an article in The Guardian yesterday about why Brown is back and Angelina Jolie is wearing it. So I think that Simon had something with all of that beige, especially pairing it with those red pants. But having said that... <laughs> Molly actually looks stunning. In episode two, there's this moment where she gets out of her car and she's wearing electric blue tights and this awesome black dress with hot pink ruffles and orange ruffles and I love it and I want to wear it today. She's so great. All of her clothes look so homemade, yeah, don't you think? Yeah, so good. Um, my fashions of the field, I love Mandy's pink dress when she's at the pub. Mm. That's so weird to say, isn't it? But it's fabulous. Yeah, it's an awesome dress. And um, there's a moment where I would like to point out that Dr. Terrence comes down to see Penny Hackforth-Jones and he's just out of the shower. Oh. <laughs> Mel! And Mel! <laughs> We are not doing this. I'm not objectifying him. I'm just saying we are that not he's... doing this in this episode, Melanie Tate. <laughs> but it's it's all isn't it all about the light and shade? I mean, you know, we do get to have. I'm just saying that Terence provides us with a moment of visual relief uh-huh. and fashion when he's he walks in having had a shower and he's drying that beautiful mane of silver hair. Mel, this is why we can never, ever watch the episode where he's up a tree in his undies. <laughs> we super can't. How gorgeous is he, though? I remember when, when he's like when he's drying his hair. I just love the towel. That's the fashion uh-huh. that I feel. Mm-hmm. I love the towel. Okay. Awesome. Okay, well, you can see all of those pictures on our Facebook page. That's a country podcast on Facebook. Mel, you're on Twitter. I am I'm at Melanie Tate and I'm at Kim Lester and our thanks as ever to Mike Pajanic for our wonderful theme tune Nate Edmondson for putting it together thank you so much to anyone who has commented on our Facebook page and put us right about something suggested something or anything we're so grateful to have you Mel, this is what I loved about Breakfast Radio as well is that you build this little community of regulars and I love All of our listeners are awesome, but um, it was the same with when I used to produce Breakfast Radio in Canberra and Betsy would call every morning and Leo, you know, like just those (laughs) usuals who would call and you kind of got to know them over the, you know, 500 years that it felt like I did that show. And so um, I think that's what I really love about Friday mornings on our Facebook page. Is hearing what Shez and Pam and Lily. And Nikki. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
it's the what best. you think of the show. We love it so much. Thank you very much, guys. We love you. We appreciate that you appreciate us. Yeah, thank you so much. Kim, my mother pointed out a few months ago that if only people, she's 67, if only people her age knew how to use podcasts. Now, a lot of people her age do know how to use podcasts, yeah. but a lot don't. And a lot of people watched the show who are around that age. So if you have a mum or a dad or an auntie or someone like that who is around that age and you know watched and loved a country practice, we would love for you to sit down with them and show them on their smartphone (laughs) or on their computer how to listen to us. My parents listen. I taught my mum how to listen and it actually got her starting listening to other podcasts as well. And um, my dad listens. He's got an app. This is so cool about my dad. He's got a cochlear implant. And so um, he actually listens through an app on his phone, which is then played directly into his thing in his ear, brain, wow. skull <laughs> attachment. Wow. So we're going into Mr. Blester's brain. Yes. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Kim, have a great fortnight. We'll be back. Oh, we'll be back in a fortnight. We'll be back in your feed in a couple of weeks talking about episodes 87 and 88 of season seven. It's called License to Kill. Make sure you watch it. I just remember being with my sister and my parents on a Monday night after dinner, watching a country practice. We were allowed to stay up a little bit later on Monday and Tuesday nights. Um, And it really kind of became, I guess, part of growing up in the early 90s. One of my favorite memories is my sister and I was so excited about Matt and Lucy getting married, like we couldn't sleep the night before. (laughs) 